0: Learn Persian with Chai and Conversation. Growing Up Iruni interview with Melody Moezi, author of The Rumi Prescription. Welcome to another Growing Up Ironi interview, a series where I talk to prominent Iranians in the diaspora about their experience of growing up, well, Ironi. My name is Leila Shams, creator of Learn Persian with Chai and Conversation, and I'm your host. Today, I'm interviewing Melody Moezi, most recently author of the book The Rumi Prescription, in which she talks about how the poetry of Rumi became a lifeline for her. Helping her to gain wisdom and insight in the face of a creative and spiritual roadblock with the help of her father, a lifelong fan of Rumi's poetry. We cover so much in this interview from the controversy of Coleman Barks and why Melody is actually a big fan of his work, to learning the poetry in its original language, to becoming an artist in a culture that isn't always the most hospitable to being an artist as a profession, to talking about mental health in a culture that hasn't always been the most hospitable to talking about mental health and so much more. It was such a joy talking to Melody, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So Melody Moezy, thank you so much for talking
1: with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here.
0: Yeah, same. So Melody is the author, as I said in the introduction, of the Rumi prescription, which I have right here. And you have the newly released uh, Iranian version. Can we see that
1: for for those of for those and of and you I that mean, are watching? We have an announcement too. Um, it's going into its second printing in Iran. Oh my goodness, uh, that's it released, amazing! It's sold out. So. That's wonderful. is the name in
0: So I'm guessing in the Persian version. So in the English version, you have all translations of the poems. I'm guessing. In the The Persian version. Yeah, it's just the actual. Okay, that's nice. And yeah, I meant to ask you about that, too. Um, Is that are the translations in the book all your own translations of the poems? My dad
1: helped me with the Persian, but like ultimately the choices of
0: words were all mine. Wonderful. So I thought we could start with a reading of the passage and then and then I'll ask you some questions about your upbringing and about the book.
1: Perfect. So uh, this is from the author's note of the prescription and just a, a couple paragraphs that are separated. There is a reason Rumi's poetry has survived so long and reached so far. His rhymes honor the sublime power of music, begging to be sung despite and because of the fact that his verse is so exquisite that it stands alone. Even without music and in translation, Rumi's words resonate across time and space, speaking to the unifying force within all of us that transcends language, culture, race, and religion. Herein rests Rumi's notion of the, quote, beloved, known by countless different names, God, truth, light, nature, beauty, and the universe, to name just a few, but sharing a common essence inextricably rooted in love. As such, the beloved is not a passion we ought to pursue, but a sacred inheritance that lives within each of us, that connects us, and that, if we let it, wakes us up. I'll stop
0: there. I think that's perfect. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, and so the premise of the book is basically that you had this like mental breakdown that happened in your life, and that that you had grown up hearing your father recite Rumi poetry, and you know he's he's a very devoted Rumi.
1: I call him an addict. Addict, yes, you do. <laughs> I'm an addict. It's a lot of Iranian v- dads, right? And I think <laughs> that's a common. It's a
0: common experience. Right. That's true. Exactly. And that this occurrence in your life led you to go back to your father and actually express interest and, and really learn these poems and
1: study them fully. Is that a good summary? Yeah, that's a great summary. Yeah, it, it took it took a long, like most kids, like I was a brat. And I mean, I don't, maybe not. It makes me feel better to say most kids, but I was a brat. Um, my dad was reciting all this poetry to me with every lesson. There was There was a poem that came with it. And I was always rolling my eyes being like, stop. <laughs> um, because my Persian, you know, my Persian is already, each time he would recite a poem, he also had to translate it from classical Persian to normal Persian. And then from normal Persian, whatever words I didn't know were translated to English. Right. Uh, so it's just like a long process. And I, and I, I was very not interested in it. And once I had my manic episode, which coincided with a mystical experience, uh, that was when I really sort of understood where Rumi was coming from. He has a poem where he says, in love with insanity, I'm fed up with wisdom and rationality. And I'll give you the Persian of it. <laughs> it's, Asherah uh, man, barfanadi vanegi, stiram, az farhangi of farzanegi. Um, so that translation is not perfect because he says, I'm in love with a profession of <laughs> sanity. Right. Right? Um, so like the, the idea that like, so I never related to that, but this idea that there's, for, for Rumi, there's two kinds of crazy and everybody's crazy and you have a choice. You can be the crazy that's rooted in love and that's what makes a mystic. Uh, or you can be the crazy that's rooted in fear and that's what makes a lunatic and a fundamentalist. And so this idea of like being able to choose Uh, I was very into choosing the version that was rooted in love. And that mystical experience was part of it. But he also recognizes, like, he's a very, like, into common sense as well. um, (laughs) And I am as well. Uh, So I knew that I had a clinical condition. In my case, I had bipolar disorder, type one, that... The way I found out was through this manic episode and uh, psychotic break that included hallucinations and delusions. And it's the only time I ever, ever in my life had delusions because finally, once I knew what it was, I could treat it. Uh, So what was tough was the medical community was very quick and thank God, both my parents are doctors. So they were very quick to say, this is a clinical medical condition. It needs treatment. We don't know what causes it. We don't know any of the under, we don't have a blood test. We don't have an x-ray, but we know you have it. And especially as somebody like I don't even drink alcohol, let alone like do drugs, but somebody who's manic looks like somebody who is high on cocaine or methamphetamine. That was obviously like the first thing they tested me for. But no, like this was just naturally hallucinations and delusions happening in my own brain. And so that ultimately led to me getting that bipolar diagnosis. And once I knew what I had, I could treat it. And it was important to me to accept it as a clinical condition, but also to accept the mystical part of that experience as being valid as well, because I had this moment of really feeling so connected to every living thing around me in a way i never had before. And not just connected, but knowing that God is within me and within all of those living things. And it was just like an extraordinary, amazing experience. That's like akin to what people, I've never done psychedelics, but I've heard those kinds of experiences experiences, psychedelic experiences. So I had this sort of revelation and I would never give that up. And I'm so grateful that I could have it without any drugs and I could <laughs> go there on my own. But also that's a very inconvenient place to be in our current reality, right? So I I needed that medication. I still take medication. I'm grateful for it. But I just wish that the medical community had been more understanding of the mystical side of my experience and the spiritual side of it. And I wish that my Muslim, uh, community would have been a lot more understanding of the clinical side of it. Cause I did have some Muslim friends who were like, this is gin. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not right. Like, an exorcism. And I thank God. I, and I know a lot of people who have been taken, whether Muslim or Catholic or other faiths, like been taken for exorcisms for this kind of stuff. So I was very lucky it as it's a long way of saying I was blessed. And lucky to have a family that understood this needed treatment and didn't tell me it was gin. And <laughs> right, right, and they had the
0: scientific background too, and they were able to help you. It's amazing, but yeah, I I want to just say I loved the book. I really loved it, and there was just so much in there that I related with. I mean, there's a <laughs> you cover a lot in there from, you know, growing up with an Iranian background. And the whole like Trump administration and and everything that happened there, the reluctance of the Iranian community to talk about mental issues. And that's a huge thing you have. I I related also, I uh, grew up in the same house as my grandfather, and he was also a scientist who just loved poetry. And um, at the end of his life, actually, you know, he retired early and he moved to Dallas suburbs, which was very depressing for him. And the way he found salvation from that was that uh, we got him a calligraphy pen and he started writing his favorite poems. And near the end of his life, he wrote, I mean, I, I really related with what you were saying, like your dad just had all, has all these scribbles everywhere. I have all these scribbles from my grandfather of like, I, I would tell him, you know, uh, oh, look, there's a pretty bird outside. It looks like a little prince. And I remember he wrote me a poem about a prince and like, <laughs> and know what that that was the last thing that he wrote to me that I have framed on my desk but uh you know as he was writing them I also was like you know every week I'm gonna call you and we can go over these poems together (laughs) so same same as you and you know it just never happened I was in college there was parties going on there were friends you know
1: I don't mean I think it's sad when even still like I was hoping that after all of it it's funny like there's white guys who've written biographies of Rumi who were like, I learned Farsi in two weeks. And I'm like, good for you. Not so sure. And it's an ongoing process. And I was hoping by the time I finished writing the book, my Farsi would be pristine. Like I had a very high hope. And now I'm just accepting that it's the way it is. My parents like consistently are like, it's cute. Like I do (laughs) events in Farsi and I mess up. Like I say things wrong. But there was a recent event that I did. Oh, I'm going to forget the word for it. That my dad was talking about me in like a very positive way, but I didn't know what it meant. And it just the irony of it was so good. He I didn't know what the word genius in Farsi was, right? Like that's a yeah. word. But he was calling me a genius in Farsi, and I was like, what does that word mean? Like that was one word. I didn't know. <laughs> Clearly not such a genius, right. but I don't even know what the word genius means. Right.
0: Well, so that leads me to my next question. I want to go back to your upbringing and talk about where were you born and what, where did you grow up?
1: Uh, I grew up mostly in Dayton, Ohio. I was born in Chicago. I was born in 79, so the year of the so-called revolution. And my parents were, though I was by birth an American, my parents were not. Uh, They're both born in Iran. So we were kicked out after the hostage crisis. Our, mm. Their documents were no longer valid after the hostage crisis. So we were kicked out and we went back to Iran. The Iran-Iraq war was going on. It wasn't the best time to be there. And we ended up going to Greece and France and finally making it back to the US and then Dayton. We just, I mean, we wanted to come to America. We didn't we didn't care where. At least my parents, I was, I was too young to, to know, but that was the idea. And we have actually, we had a large Persian community in Dayton. So, so we were very lucky for that. And I guess what they were doing then uh, was sort of recruiting doctors from other places to come to more, I wouldn't call Dayton rural, but (laughs) not like New York, LA, Chicago. So then what was your interaction with the Persian
0: language growing up? Did you, I'm sure your parents spoke it to you. Did you speak it back?
1: I did sometimes. Th- mostly, I, I guess, it was my first language. It's not my best right. language. My, my first word was dadaje which is, like, <laughs> I was sick. And I guess I learned how to say thermometer, and it's actually some easy word. So, really right. uh, but, so I learned Farsi first, and then Greek, and then uh, English. So I speak, basically, my native tongue is English, and I grew up in a household where there was a lot of them speaking in Farsi and me answering in English.
0: Right. And you had a sister, so that... So we, yeah, and
1: even with like all the Iranian friends that we had, like we would mostly speak English and we weren't, and I, I like, I have some friends who grew up in LA and don't, um, never have never even been to Iran and right. their Farsi is perfect. Like, but they grew up around all these. And so I just didn't get that. I got I got the kitchen Farsi every time. I remember I did an interview in Farsi once with Voice of America and afterwards she's like, <laughs> that's very embarrassing because, like, I did, and I worked so hard to like know the right words. And, like, and, like, and, like human, right like, I don't know how to say human right in Farsi, but like, every fruit, like, there are many fruits I know in Farsi that I didn't know in English. Right, time. right. So, like, the, those are useful things. I eat a lot of fruit. So, right. like, that's a useful thing for me.
0: And then, what about reading and writing? Reading and writing. So we had Varsity class,
1: and that was just a group of our friends. It was like me, Noabar, Amir, and Ali. And so the four of us were in this class. And it was very funny. <laughs> uh, we we didn't we we would read out loud. I was oh, I'm dyslexic. So like the reading out loud in English is bad enough. And I'm just a slow reader, period, in any language, English, Spanish, Varsity. And I just was. I, I hated I hate reading out loud. The reading out loud part of it was
0: tough. And what about culturally, like how would you say like, did you feel like you were Iranian growing up? I'm in Dayton how, yeah. how are yeah. things?
1: I felt I felt very Iranian just because that was we had that community, and there was no school I ever went to where I was the only Iranian. and that's because of our community. So mm-hmm. and also I, there was no school I went to where I was the oldest. There was always an older Iranian cousin. We weren't all related, but everyone, they were, they were right. like, oh, I've taught your cousin. Like, so <laughs> like all the teachers had had one of my cousins, if not my sister, right? My sister's older than me as well. But I do remember in middle school, my best friend and I was talking about uh, Novak. Mm-hmm. We we were talking Farsi one morning. It was like after Tarsha Masuri and her, her coat that night caught fire. So it was like uh-huh. drama of her coat having caught fire. And so we were talking about that. And my advisor was like, stop. You can't speak another language. You have to speak English. And because she thought we were talking about her. I wasn't, we weren't talking about her, but after that we started
0: talking. Oh about wow. Her. <laughs> right, right, right.
1: <laughs> and, and so I was basically in middle school, like forbidden from speaking it. I'm I've always been sort of rebellious when I'm told not to do something. I really want to do it. That that was very good for my first <laughs> Um, and in college, my Farsi got really good. I had a friend Roxana who she came to the U.S. when she was 13. Her English is like mine, but her Farsi is perfect. So my Farsi got really good in college. But then the more people I, I'm able to talk to here in Wilmington, I live on the coast in North Carolina. They're very right. Iranian. So we I've hunted a couple other professors out at my university, and we're trying to get together more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> got it. And so then, chronologically, so you've got married to an American, so that also you have a different culture in your household. Um, and then, how old were you when you started uh, doing this study of Rumi with your father?
1: Thirties, late thirties. Yeah. Okay. Um, so old. <laughs> I, wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't young at that point. It took me a long time to figure out. Like, basically, it was the recognition that like he's not always going to be here. I. I rely on him for so much when it comes to that sort of thing. And since I do love the poetry, I would frequently like go to the poetry and be like, Ahmad, what is the, my dad's name is Ahmad. I call him by his first name. Um, I was like, Ahmad, what does this mean? Like, can you explain? And he gives these like long explanations and like, I have access to not only the poem and I can send him poems. Like people send me poems and are like, where's the Farsi of this? You know, about at least 10 to 20% of the time the first he doesn't exist right like, exactly he does, it's so different um right. but he has this mentality of like no that whatever that is at its heart
0: it's molana okay so like coleman barks for example he's not like an anti coleman barks he loves coleman barks okay interesting because i <laughs> i feel like there's a lot of controversy behind that right now
1: there's a lot of drama around it but i will say there's a difference between like appropriation and appreciation. I think for him, like I, there is a part of me that feels like it's stolen, but also I never wouldn't, would have written this book if it weren't for Coleman Barks. That you know, growing up with Molana and Hafez and Sadi and all of that, like way above my head, I would never have the nerve to say, I'm going to translate this poetry and I'm going to learn this poetry in Persian but then I'm like, well, you know. Once I realized Coleman Barks didn't even speak Farsi, <laughs> I was like, well, I can do it. Like if he can do it, then I definitely can do it. Suddenly, I had permission to right. do it, um, which I wouldn't have had otherwise. I, I don't think I ever would have approached something like this. Okay, it was too hard.
0: Yeah, I like that. I actually, someone called me who was doing a study about Rumi or something from a university and asked my opinion on Coleman Barks, and I kind of had the same take as like. You know, it seems like he feels it. He's like tapped into something and he's written it in a way that's really accessible to people. And I feel like the more like awareness there is about these poems, the better. So if that and if it interests someone in like going and picking up a Rumi book, then, you know, and and reading the original or.
1: Yeah. Rumi even says like Hamdeli as Hamzabani. but It's better to be of the same heart than to be of the same tongue, same language. And I think what one of the things that makes his poetry, I, I do think his poetry, Coleman Barks's translations are the translations, renditions are the best translations. Um, although, I mean, they're they're better ones in terms. Now there are better ones. Right, uh, right. is a, a beautiful, like, rhyming translation in terms of accuracy. Uh, but I think Americans really related to that. Um, and English speakers in general really right. related to that. And I, I don't I don't see why to take take that away from them like and they're not like he yes he wiped the islam from a lot of it i think he was trying to connect with english-speaking audiences who were majority Christian. so the stories about jesus come in and not so much the muhammad story <laughs> right, right. Um, so it's not it's not quite the same Still, i'm still grateful
0: well so tell me about the um like specifics of your study with your father like how did it did you study whole poems was it just these snippets that he was giving you? like, how often were y'all studying?
1: So he, he had, so I went to San Diego where they live and was, uh, spent an entire, never in in my adult life, spent a month away from my husband, let alone a month with my parents living in the town. So that was an interesting thing, but I, it was for this purpose of learning the poetry. And I was like set for classes and he was like the same he's always been. The classes are everywhere all the time. And I was always trying to write things down. And he was always shutting my computer. (laughs) And he was always saying, don't like, just listen to it. And these were the poems I chose are the poems that he has repeated more times than any other poem. So it's kind of cool for me to have this book because all of these poems are my dad's favorite poems. So it's like and it's really cool for him because he has all his favorite poems like together <laughs> um in Farsi now as well. Like it's really being able to connect that way was great. But I did try and do these like you know, two hours every morning we're gonna do class, but like, oh, there's a golf lesson or right. come with me to to, to the boardwalk, like to take a walk. And <laughs> it was just like every, the best lessons never came. And this, I mean, this is a lesson of life in general. Always. Yeah. Never come when you have a pen and paper and like waiting for them. It, the book took a lot longer to write than I, I'm a very impatient person. So it took a lot longer to write than I either anticipated or wanted at the time, but ultimately it took as long to write as I needed to write it. And so how does your study
0: continue now? Like, are you still reading these poems? You have a lot of them memorized. Is that right? I
1: have a good amount, not like my dad. Okay. No, <laughs> I have a few, but um, like there's some that are, for me, have become mantras. Like one that has become a big mantra for me. And I don't even think this is a couplet. I think it's just, Misra, uh, like a, just half of a couplet. <laughs> and it's, uh, which means, You went out in search of gold. My translation is you went out in search of gold far and wide, but all along you were gold on the inside. And that is the, like, whenever I'm in a place where I feel like I don't belong, or I feel like people are judging me, like before an interview, like, this is my way of remembering that, like, not only my golden side, but like, these are the people from whom I descend, the people who wrote something like that, you know, like, I'm nervous, then there's other people holding me up who are not. and, And even if I think I'm, you know, not smart enough for whatever thing it is that I'm supposed to do, I know that I have a base of, you know, ancestors who are a lot smarter than I am now, holding <laughs> me up. And that's what I come from. And that's right. that part of the message of the book as well as to go back to your own culture. Totally. And history.
0: I actually, yeah, I wrote down kind of all the themes of the book and I was like, man, we could have a podcast episode about each one of these things. Cause you also talk about how you grew up feeling kind of disconnected from this like Iranian culture, especially when you went to LA and you're like, you were around these Iranians that that like look a certain way, or you know, we have these stereotypes of the LA Persians, and I completely related with that. I always say, you grew like up
1: in Austin, right? Like, you no, know,
0: I grew up in Dallas,
1: you grew but, up in Dallas, so yeah. Texas, <laughs> yes, Texas,
0: so got it. But I will say, like, we also had a big Iranian community in Dallas, Texas has a lot of Iranians, but I always felt so weird among the Iranians, like, I was just like, you know, we had all these you beautiful girls in high school who knew how to do their hair, knew how to do their makeup. I just felt so different from that. And then it wasn't until I came to college in Austin that I was like, oh, I think I'm just a weird Iranian. And there's a lot of weird Iranians. Yeah, and I yeah. kind of met them all. And I was like, OK, it's just you're not going to relate to everybody in your culture, you know, just like you're not going to relate to everybody in, in the world. But exactly. then you like find your people. So so I really related with that. And I actually I don't know. I, I wrote this quote down. I don't know if you read this. Um, Sami Nostrat recently wrote, I have struggled for so long to find the best way to relate to my heritage my whole life. I've, I haven't been Iranian enough for much of my own family or the right kind of Persian woman, whatever that means for other Iranians. And ever since my show came out, I faced nonstop scrutiny from Iranians about all the ways I'm doing it wrong. Just one small reason I don't read comments or messages. It can be hard to love being Iranian when it feels like Iranians don't always love me back. Uh, I read that and I was like, oh, I totally I feel that completely. Like, I I feel like a lot of us feel that. And you expressed it really nicely in your book of like being surrounded by, by your people and just feeling different. Yeah. And feeling like you talk about things that they don't talk about openly. And so I really appreciated that in the book as well.
1: Oh, yeah. Thanks. I, I hadn't seen that post, but I'm going to go back and look for it.
0: Yeah, I found that very heartbreaking. But I also feel recently for me, I feel like just through social media, I know it has all its downsides and everything, but I do feel like I have found a lot of people like you, like Sammy and like, you know, the weird Orions out there who are talking. Sorry, I don't, I I don't mean that. I feel
1: like it's the ones who never got plastic surgery. Okay, maybe that's it. I'm not sure if that's it. But I do know like neither me nor my sister have ever received the nose jobs that were very much encouraged, but but there's
0: that, and also there's the whole theme of uh of you know the stereotype of Iranians being doctors and lawyers which which you have, that it's really wonderful to hear that your parents, despite being doctors themselves, like created this platform for you, you got the education, and then now they're so supportive of you pursuing your passion, so yeah, it
1: took some time it took some time, for- yeah. <laughs> get to that point but I think and I you know the only reason I wanted to be a lawyer and I've, I wanted to be a lawyer since I was a kid like mm-hmm. very young uh was because I've always been interested in justice like that's been the thing I've been best at right. like something is unfair and happening in front of me you can bet I'm gonna say something about it. right <laughs> hands down I will so that's the one thing that I'm really good at I'm right. not in like I will not shy away from speaking up if I see something that's unfair. Uh, and trying to fix it. And I thought the legal system was the best way to do that growing up. And then once I got to law school I and I wanted to be an international human rights lawyer, which I, you know, God bless the international human rights lawyers doing this work, but you have to fail every day. Um, and if you could enforce international human rights law, then we wouldn't have half the, you know, world leaders. We have. Right, right. Um, so it's it's just a very unenforceable, difficult, uh thing to do. And it's you right. know, being somebody who's so impatient, for me, writing was a much faster way to change the world than law, because I knew right. even no matter how much I practiced, then I it's not like I'm gonna change the law or fix. And even if I do change the law, it doesn't make right. follow it. And to change the law, then I would have to go into politics, which I definitely don't <laughs> that was not right. but with writing, like you can change people's minds with words. Like right. that's power. Like and I, I really think that level of power is just, it's amazing. And it's with art in general, whether it's words, um, visual art, or like Samin with food, I think that's probably. Oh, definitely. Music through, you know, and those are the people I've really related to and connected with. And it's really hard in our community to be an artist, like to to do that for a living, because it's in Iran, it's not a job, it's a hobby. (laughs) And so, Even, like, with the book being translated into Persian because of sanctions, like, I'm definitely not making, yeah, we're going to the second printing. I am making no money from it. But thank God, like, the publisher who deserves, and the translator, they deserve, like, all the credit for that. And it makes me feel good that, like, there are people in Iran making money off of this (laughs) book. Like, no one's making a huge living off of it. When I came to my parents and was like, I want to stop practicing law and, like, do this full time. It, I, it wasn't something I, w- I did before I had an advance that was able to support me. I Once I had that advance with my second book, when I sold my second book, the, it was, I mean, even to me, it was just such a large, I mean, it's not a ton of money, but it was for books, like a lot of money. Like, I, and I did, I'd never thought that was a possibility for me to just, Be able to make a living as a writer, and once that was possible, then I went to my parents and I was like, "Okay, I want to do this." And then I was like, "By the way, my agent just sold my book for guess how much?" And they were like, "Okay, I guess." (laughs) 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 And it was also that book was about having bipolar disorder, so there there was also this notion of like, "Do you want to put yourself out there?" Um, like, do you want to add to the discrimination you're facing in your life? But as an activist, like, I couldn't. I I think mental health is a civil rights issue, especially having been held in solitary confinement and things like that. It's, it was important for me to speak up about it. And because I had the personal experience, I was, I was down for it. You know, they just thought I would lose credibility and certainly like maybe in certain circles I did, but I think more than anything, I gained it because once you say I'm dealing with a mental health condition, whether it's in, you know, a serious mental health condition, be it bipolar, or schizophrenia, schizoaffective, um, frequently people will be like, oh yeah, my sister, my brother, my mom, me. But they only tell you that if you tell them. That has been the gift of that book is that I've been able to learn that there's so many people with serious mental health conditions who are living and right. Um, And I mean, that's a huge gift. So in so many ways that book gave back to me and allowed me to like finally make a living doing this thing I love doing. I mean, I don't love doing, it. I love having written <laughs> I don't love writing all the time. Right. The writer who says they love it all the time is, I feel like lying. I want to believe that they're
0: lying because it's work. It's And like you do it and then you like have to put it out there and people have to read it and judge it. And it's, it's really hard. So I very much admire your work. I admire that you do this. It's, I feel like with being a lawyer, you know, you win some trials, you lose some, but it's not like in this public forum where everyone can just like look at you and,
1: yeah. And I basically with my first book, I got death threats and rape. Wow.
0: And it was about being Muslim in
1: America is right. Yeah. Right. It was okay. about young Muslim Americans. And I included two uh queer Muslims in that book. I'd written wow. about a dozen young Muslim Americans, including myself. Um, one of which was bisexual, the other one was gay, and um I had a my, one of my professors at law school was, is like one of the leading experts on Islamic law. And he wrote the preface for it for me, which is huge for him. For somebody who knows Islamic law to do that was, it was a huge gift. And then to have that book come out and then to get these death threats, realize that like, you know, it's, take it as a compliment. Although for the record, I now report all death threats to that. Back then I didn't know I, I just didn't want to, I, I just deleted them. I was like, no. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was oh my like, goodness. this is, And they, they all seem to come from like, my husband did some investigating. I think they came from um, that, like UAE, but yeah, but it was being hated from both sides being hated from like my fellow Muslims for being too liberal and whatever, but being hated from by non-Muslims, which is the whole reason I wrote the book in the first place. So
0: but you have a really nice anecdote in the book, too. You were saying, you know, you can change the world by writing books. You have a really nice anecdote about this one woman that you saw that you, you know, asked, what is a Muslim supposed to look like? And that led her to a journey of reading your book. And it changed, you know, she gave it to her whole family. And, you know, that's just that's amazing. That's just one example that you saw. Like, I'm sure there's countless people like that who. That was an amazing to. experience. Like,
1: that's, that's yeah, that's pretty sweet. it's a wonderful <laughs> yeah, story. Somebody's mind.
0: But now, having gone through this journey and having learned these poems, um, I kind of want to ask uh, what your view is of learning the Persian language. I mean, we've talked about Coleman Barks; you can be Hamdil or Ham. So, do you think it's important to read these uh, in the Persian language? Do you think it's important to learn it? What are your your views on learning Persian?
1: Oh my gosh! Yes, I think it's important. I I'm so I have a niece right now who is um, a freshman at Duke in mm-hmm. undergrad. And she's taking Persian classes. She, her Farsi, she didn't really grow up speaking much Farsi. Um, so she doesn't really know it, but she's learning it. And like watching her learn and being able to talk to her is, has been extraordinary. And for me, getting to a point where, you know, I've since the book was published in Farsi, now I'm able to do events in Persian. And me, I met with a book club full of women, even before the book was translated, they read it in English as like an exercise, they had a different chapter, and they, there was a great, amazing book club. And to be able to connect with people in Iran, huge for me. Um, And my hope is that this is a way of being able to go back safely at some point. Um, Because of the work that I've done with the queer jihad movement, not entirely (laughs) safe, but yeah, but... I'm working on it, and I, because even in the translation, for instance, they, there was some censorship, so, but it was more important for me that the book be available to people inside of Iran than it be identical, what it, what it was in English, and it's pretty close, but yeah, it was, it was hard for me, it was, it was very hard for me to pull out, like, there's a reference to how uh, Molana's poetry is, like, part of, reflective of so many different faiths, and there was a reference to like. Hindus, Sikhs, Muslims, Christians, Jews, um, Jain, like all these different faiths, including Bahais. The Bahai, the site from they took that citation out, which killed. Like you know, stuff like that still is gets under your skin, right? But you were
0: saying your niece is learning Persian, and so yeah. Why do you think it's important to know the Persian language?
1: I think if it's part of where you come from, um, that's something there are certain things that you can say um, and you do such a great job in terms of teaching like <laughs> the funny sayings there because it's part of the culture right like when I'm signing I sent an email I think we sent maybe two or three emails and I sent the, the latest one I had written horrible at the end <laughs> right like let me sacrifice myself for you <laughs> not like a standard you know, but we're both yeah. Iranian. So right. like, I think it's a way to connect with people that like we can connect in a way a lot more quickly, right. like, a lot more easily because we're literally like, we share a language. And so you understand things like that. You understand things like tarof. Um, and without understanding the language of Nadare, um, like all of the right. you can say, uh, deal with tarof, like you don't you don't know that. And it's just the richness of it. Isn't the same, like just being able to say like, and I think this is maybe one of your recent lessons I was looking at was, uh, uh, right. I miss, right. Like my heart has become tight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Literal translations of them are, are so sweet. So like just the, yeah. for the idioms, but I think it's a way of connecting with your culture and your background and where you come from. And right. that to me is a kind of healing.
0: Or even these poems, you'd mentioned a poem in the beginning that you had the translation for, but you were like, oh, there's this one word, though, that we can't translate. I feel like those are the words, you know, when when I read these in, in Persian, there's a lot of words in there that, like you, like, I don't know, I have to look up, and like, they have Arabic roots, or they're, they're just very difficult words, and after a while, you learn, you kind of unlock this key, and you learn how to decipher them. But there are just these words in poems that will knock you out of your chair. You know, the more you think about them, like that happens where all of a sudden just like hits you the gravity of this poem. And I feel like it just doesn't, the translation just doesn't do that. You can understand the the meaning behind it. You can understand the feeling, but it doesn't knock you out of your chair the way that one Persian word does, you know?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And it's like home, you know, yes. like your heart knows that your soul knows that and Rumi is always saying, go to your source and doesn't mean your source as in the country you're from, but that's part of your source as in the beloved, but also as in like the more you go back. And I write about this in the book, this notion of like intergenerational trauma, which all of us who come to a different country, we're part of a diaspora like that. Of course we have war and revolution and like colonialism and all of that, but we made it right. Like, no, we're still here. And that to me is a testament to intergenerational resilience and that going back to your own culture is part of that. And I see Americans in, as an American, like I see other Americans who are like, let me run off to India and go to an ashram and like, and I'm just like. Do you like somebody with like Irish heritage would go to India, <laughs> and, and there's nothing wrong with going to India. I just feel like if you're Indian, that's a great place to go to find yourself. But if right. you have this rich Irish heritage and history, like it's not like you don't have your amazing poets, and they won't go to their own Irish. That's history. interesting. And it just seems silly to me that you would go try and find yourself in a totally separate place. Not not that I don't value like going to different parts of the world. I just feel like the path for me. To the beloved is shorter in Farsi. Right. Is shorter as a Muslim because generations and generations of people before me—that's how they got to the beloved. Amazing! So, I love that. Yeah. So it's just a shorter path. It's not that it's the right path. I don't believe in that. Right.
0: Salam, everyone. Layla here with a quick break to tell you about our program, Learn Persian with Chayan Conversation. If this conversation has sparked your interest in Persian poetry in any way. I want you to know that we actually have an entire course dedicated to learning Persian poetry. You can hear many of the poems discussed during this conversation on the podcast, including beshno Ne," which Melody recommends as a good place to start when studying Rumi. You can find it on the podcast feed or on our website at chaiinconversation.com, with chai spelled C-H-A-I. In addition to discussing the poem, I have special lessons where I go through the poems word by word, line by line, and teach the vocabulary and phrases in the poems so that you can use them in conversation. These lessons are meant for complete beginners to the Persian language, as well as those well-versed in Persian wanting to learn more poetry. To me, poetry is the absolute best way to learn the Persian language, and it's incredibly important to our culture, so check out those lessons. Back to the interview. I always do ask also, that's a good lead into this. um, What is your hope for the Iranian diaspora uh, at this point in time? Where do you see us going or what do you see our journey as being?
1: I hope we can all go back safely uh, to Iran. That is a big hope that we can all do that. And I hope, I know there's a lot of members of the, so I will say, The most offensive Islamophobic questions I have ever received uh, at events, um, online, in comments, uh, with relation to Islam that are the most offensive, have always come from fellow Iranians. And I know it's from a place of trauma, because they accept the so-called Islamic Republic's version of Islam, which is not Islam, (laughs) Um, they accept that as being Islam. So of course, like they're, and they, they've they been traumatized by it. Like they have a history that I don't know what it is, but they're right. standing up in the middle of an audience and saying something that I'm like, God, this is my own people. And are like encouraging war with Iran. Like right. I, you know, it's easy to encourage war with Iran when your family isn't still. There. I mean, my parents just got back yesterday, but you, you shouldn't have to have family to know that there are human beings living there who right. don't deserve that. And no change can happen from the outside. Like real change ha- happens from the inside. And we can be supportive as, of a, dia- as a diaspora um, of Iranians within Iran who are doing that, but we can't impose it. Like obviously America has tried to impose it many times. It doesn't work, but we never would have had a, an Islamic revolu- a so-called Islamic revolution if it weren't for the coup, right, in 1953. So that history is important to, to recognize, but for the diaspora, like, I hope that we're humble. I hope that we, and I feel very bad specifically for Iranian Muslims, because they've really been yeah. from their faith. Like I see Iranian Jews and Baha'is and Zoroastrians, and they have a sense of faith, very strong. Right. Um, Iranian Muslims not only sometimes do they not have a sense of faith, they have a sense of disdain. Like I've never met more evangelical atheists. <laughs> if that's who you want to be, like, that's fine. But there's something like divine and beautiful in this poetry that is really, I mean, Rumi was an Islamic scholar. This <laughs> is not just coming, you know, in some of the, it's just direct translation from Arabic to Farsi of the Quran. Our faith is beautiful too, but it's been stolen and manipulated. Very much like, I mean, I live in the American South. I see a lot of my students Hate Christianity, and I, I've, I can't tell you how many red letter Bibles I've handed out to students to be like, this is look what Jesus actually said, and <laughs> to what they told you for yourself, learn for yourself. And that was the gift of being in the di- diaspora was I was able to do that for myself. But I recognize that that those Iranians who are in favor of say war with Iran or in favor of sanctions or things like that, a lot of them are speaking from a level of trauma that I don't know and can't understand. So I, right. my hope is that we can be empathetic toward one another and not, I mean, not promote killing one another, promoting sanctions or war or anything like that. Um, and hurting one another, like fighting amongst one another. That I really hope right. that for the diaspora and for like this idea that there's only one space for us too, you know, as a, as right. a writer, like I want there to be more Iranian writers. I, I right. don't want there to be left. So like, it's important to me to help other Iranian writers who want to do that, because I know how hard it is to want to do something that isn't Dr. Lawyer Engineer. Right. Right.
0: And so to end, um, I should have probably asked you to prepare for this before. But is there (laughs) is there like one poem that you would recommend, like maybe to someone who's not familiar with Rumi's poetry or, you know, to, to start with to dive into Rumi?
1: The start of the nas- mass, the Masnavi, the first I think thirteen lines of uh, the the poem about the nay, the reed bed, and that I think is that's the one that strikes me as a great place to start.
0: It's perfect because we do have a whole lesson on it.
1: We do. <laughs> We're our, oh yeah. <laughs> yes. I do, there's, there's also, and I don't know where it is. It might be in the mass It might be in uh, mm-hmm. of shams. But there's uh, a poem where. Um, especially a lot of us are searching, um, yes. this, uh, he, he says, and I'll say in Farsi, and I'll probably not remember the translation, but mm-hmm. um, And so this is like Rumi talking to people who are going for Hajj. And he's like, all of you are going to, for Hajj. Why, why are you going far away when the beloved is right next door. And there right. later he said he talks about being right next door. But um that notion of like you don't need to go anywhere. You don't need to search for anything. Like everything you need is already within you. And that right. that that is what speaks to me most about his poetry. But in terms of learning it for the first time. And one of the things I love about that, there's there's a line and I i can't tell you the version of it where he says he talks about Majnoon, which is uh that's a, that's a whole nother lesson. <laughs> um, but he talks about the the lesson of the reed flute is reserved only for those who in madness reside. And obviously, that that hits me really closely, and I I'm right. like yes, it's a classified. And I my translation was like this lesson is classified. It's only right. for those who in madness reside, and I I buy that a hundred percent. And the, that madness rooted in love. And the book ends with with talking about love, and I I.
0: I love the way the ending. I I won't spoil it for people, but they should definitely read it because it really does um, all boil down to love. Uh, all these poems, language, everything. I mean, the you know, this your love of your father led you to the love of this poetry, and and to you know, healing, and and all of that. So, again, I want to thank you for this wonderful book. Uh, I really appreciated it. I really loved reading it. I related with so much in there and I, I encourage everybody to read it. And uh, can you just tell us where can people find the book and where can people find out more about you?
1: Yes, it is available wherever books are sold. Um, I encourage you, if you can, um, go to Bookshop or your local independent bookstores. If you, can, if you can afford to do that and support your local independent bookstore, I really encourage you to do that. Um, and Bookshop is a great website to be able to figure that out if you don't know what your local independent bookstore is. Uh, but you can buy, I mean, you can also buy it at Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and, uh, the, in terms of getting hold of me, I, I, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Melody
0: and it's spelled M O E Z Z I. And we'll link to all
1: of these on the uh, page for this, for this interview. Thank you. And I have a newsletter. They're welcomed. I have a newsletter that I haven't sent anything out for, for like more than a year. No, (laughs) maybe not. I, I need I'm very sad. So if you want to sign up for a newsletter that only comes once a yeah. year. It came
0: out, I have to say, also an interesting part of the story, March March 2020. So like you covered everything in the book except for the pandemic.
1: Which, but I which, did there's a part about virology in the book that runs through. There's actually a part where my dad talks about how humans think that they're so big, but a little virus. Oh my gosh, I missed that. That. I've
0: just like blocked everything about viruses out. I'm like, don't talk
1: about viruses to me. <laughs> it's really prescient That's and so all funny. And scary Because, well, he's right. I mean, obviously, yeah. we lived it. But right. it, and, and this is another example of the book coming out right as the pandemic started. Is it was so helpful for people, um, and I, I'm so grateful for that. Obviously, it's not the best for right? right. <laughs> like, my tour was canceled. Everything was canceled, right? But but it it came out like what I found in my life consistently is that the beloved's timing is always better than mine. I never would would have chosen that timing if I knew, but it was better than my what I would have chosen.
0: And did you continue your study? And did you see your parents during the pandemic, or was it
1: they gave me COVID? Oh Jesus! <laughs> <geez. laughs> they uh, we we all got the Delta variant. Oh my gosh! Were they
0: like the Iranians going to Costco every
1: week and? <laughs> No, they, they wore their masks. They went to, they wore their masks. They were vaccinated and they went to a very, very small Jewish Iranian wedding in LA. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, a small Jewish, marriage like Iranian <laughs> wedding is at least 300 people. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay. So they got it there. They brought it and they were visiting because, like, we were all vaccinated and we thought we were okay. And thankfully, like, we were, we were all okay because it, because we were vaccinated, It wasn't so bad. But I don't recommend <laughs> getting.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Melody John. That was so fun, and I I still have a million questions. But over time, over time, <laughs> thank you so much for talking with us. And again, um, there will be links to all these things that we talked about, including the book and Melody's Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff on the show notes for this uh, for this episode. So thank you so much, and good luck uh, with the rest of the writing. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much, Layla John. Take care. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Melody. Again, you can find all the links of things we talked about, including a link to purchase her book on the show notes for this podcast. In addition, find out more about our poetry program at com, with chai spelled C-H-A-I. There you'll find more information about all our Persian language courses and can even sign up for our newsletter where we'll send you mini lessons on the Persian language straight to your inbox. Special thanks to Melody Moezi for joining us today. Chadwick Wood edited this podcast. Babak Rajabi wrote and performed our theme music. And my name is Leila Shams. Until next time, khuda hafez!